Okay, Fergus, I'm always amazed by how we have this sort of dual life where we have our familiar world in, in Britain and, you know, the dustbin men are em- emptying the bin outside my shed now. And, <laughs> then we have, and then we're talking about the Galapagos. And, you know, sometimes when I talk down the pub, they, yeah. um, they think they that I'm on end- strangely. Well, they look at me strangely. They think I'm on endless holidays. Uh, <laughs> these things are wonderful. They are quite a bit of work. Yes. And uh, and as you're uh, listening to your bin men outside, I'm very fortunate because I live beside the sea, and in fact, the tide is very full at the minute, and the waves are rolling in, and I literally uh, could be on a ship because I'm so close to it. Um, and I'm looking out into the Irish Sea, but both of us have been very fortunate to get into the Pacific and travel to the Galapagos Islands. So um, you talk to me about your trip first. When did you go? Well, I went in uh, 2012 for the uh, Khaled bin Sultan Living Oceans Foundation. Living Oceans Foundation is a organization that um, studies corals all around the world. That's one of the things it does. And um, they were in the Galapagos in 2012. And we did a live broadcast off the deck of the ship into the Smithsonian Institute in, in Washington, where wow. Sylvia Earle was, um, Sylvia Earle, the famous um, marine conservationist was uh, chairing a, a, a conference on uh, coral bleaching and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we um, gave us three films, which I'd edited on the ship, and then a live discussion from the deck of the ship as we were off Darwin Island, which is one of the, nor- the northernmost islands. I can tell you about that later, but but I, I tend to do things which are in the sea, of course, because my marine background. And, and you, yes. um, you've been there twice, and you were on land. And of yeah, course I it's got onto land, and I guess we can compare, contrast the one, the wonderful wildlife because I've seen obviously video footage of underneath, and the the seas are pretty spectacular. Yeah, I was so fortunate. I got there in nineteen, I think, in nineteen eighty four for a herpetology conference, and those were the days. I was out for Radio Four with my colleague Miles Barton, and. Um, those were the days you couldn't fly direct to the Galapagos Islands. You can do that now as a tourist, but um, we had to fly to Quito in Ecuador. Ecuador, of course, owns the Galapagos. Um, and we overnighted there and then took a military aircraft to one of the islands the next day and then a boat on to Santa Cruz to go to a herpetology conference. I'm sure you know what herpetology is all about, do you? Well, it, although it sounds a bit like the disease herpes, um, it yeah. isn't, does it? Although probably a similar Greek rutum or Latin yeah. rutum. It's the study of reptiles, essentially, and what a what a good place to go and study the reptiles. So let's talk about first impressions. Uh, you you obviously sailed to the islands, and can you rem- can you remember standing on deck and seeing the Galapagos Islands for the first time and thinking? Well, uh, the first uh, you're absolutely right, but the first thing is that, of course. Um, in 2012, it was so much easier to get to the Galapagos. And I think we flew into um, Isabella um, and we picked up the ship there. But that was a simple, relatively simple journey overnight in Ecuador, which, of course, owns the Galapagos. And then to the archipelago of the Galapagos, which is, what, five, six hundred miles um, west of, of Ecuador. And, um, and there's maybe, what, 20 islands, handful of islands, handful of big ones anyway. Um, and, uh, the ship, um, which was called the Golden Shadow was waiting for us. Um, I'd worked on the Golden Shadow in several other places in the world, but, um, it's a wonderful, uh, platform for research and, uh, Living Oceans Foundation and all their scientists were on it as well. And then we steamed north towards the northernmost islands, which are very rarely visited, um, Darwin and Wolf. And Darwin was only, um, uh, landed on in 1964 by helicopter. 
So that was a real privilege to be able to go to some of the most remote and wonderful parts of the world. And I can tell you some of the animals that I saw. In fact, one of the most amazing dives of my life was on Darwin. Oh, I can't refuse an invitation like that. Tell us all about it. Well, I was going to tease you a bit longer and you tell me some tortoises. But... <laughs> all right. Well, I will then. So uh, as we're doing the compare contrast, I uh, my first impressions on that first trip, uh, we were flying out in a military aircraft. Um, I We did fly across um, Santa Cruz and then land on a little island to the north of Santa Cruz. I can't remember the name of it. I'm actually looking at a map. It might have been Baltra. Ultra Island, and then took a little boat across. But as you're as you're driving driving across Santa Cruz to um, the populated area, you're very very much aware of the fact that you're on a volcanic um, island. Uh, it's quite quite barren. And then when you get down to the sea and the coast. The first thing you see are these marine iguanas everywhere. And you must have seen marine iguanas in your dives, because of course, despite the fact that they live on the land, they um, are specialised feeders. And they go down and crawl along the the rocks and the sea to eat seaweed. They're just the most amazing creatures. Don't yeah, they're incredibly tame as well. Because they they sniff salt uh, out out their noses and um, I it looks remember. like they're sneezing, doesn't it? It looks like yeah. they're kind of yeah. And then they and their salt comes out their nose because of course it's pretty salty in the sea. And uh, yeah. they're quite tame, I seem to remember. Although maybe a little bit edgy if you get too near them. Well, I did get far too near to one. I remember one of the herpetologists that I was doing a a nature walk with on one of our recordings and he was holding one of the iguanas and I stupidly decided to try and get some recordings of it wheezing as he held it and of course you can imagine what happened. I got salt all over my glasses and all over my face and up my nose so that's uh, not a terribly pleasant experience but there's not too many people in the world can say that they have been sneezed on by it. Um, a marine iguana from the Galapagos Islands so I hold it up yeah, as a kind of slight badge of honour. You and Charles Darwin. <laughs> yes. Um, the the other thing that, uh, of course, that the islands are very famous for um, are the giant tortoises. And the first time that you see a giant tortoise, uh, I mean, they are like I think I might have described it at the time like a walking coffee table. They they they're they're very aptly named, and they're surprisingly quick. The way that they can march around and and you know when they, you're feeding them or when you're uh, interviewing them again as you don't interview a tortoise, but you interview somebody about the tortoise. They're Although you around. could interview a tortoise. I seem to remember them coming up and looking at you with their heads, yes, you know, put it up at a microphone curious. level. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they and they have this wheezing long breath that you think is never going to stop. And um, uh, it's not a terribly uh, pleasant smell. But uh, again, when you're trying to record uh, an interview with the scientist as I was, and I was in a pen with Lonesome George, who was named so because he was the last uh, remaining uh, animal of his, uh, I think, sub subspecies of. of There's lots of giant tortoises on each of the islands, aren't there? And each one, each island has a um, unique species. And yeah. although presumably Lonesome George could have bred with some from the other islands, they probably wouldn't have wanted to do that for purity. No. Exactly. And uh, I think we, I think I read that there were something like fifteen originally. I think there might be down to twelve now, but they are really spectacular. Species, but, uh, 12, 12 different species, yeah. Yeah, but you you must have seen some spectacular wildlife. So on this boat where you were doing this live stream, did you have to dive and film, or had you? Yeah, we do. We do a lot of diving on on ships like that. Um, actually, we'd we'd joined uh, for a week ahead of that large ship um, on a catamaran where we had 
uh, got a chance to do even more diving because what we were trying to do is to collect enough material of, of the coral reefs to show people how wonderful they still are in the Galapagos. Um, although they, they too have been damaged by, um, bleaching and, and uh, so on. But, um, so we were there for quite a long time and, uh, I, I could tell you a, a, a about each of the dives, but each of them was spectacular in its own way. We'd probably do two or three dives a day. But the most spectacular was one that I did off Darwin Island. Darwin Island is, is really quite far north in the whole group. And, uh, it has this, uh, amazing volcanic, uh, face. It's, they're, they're volcanic. In fact, um, I think Darwin himself called the Galapagos Islands the lands, land of the volcanoes because there's, craters and and obviously volcanic islands coming up from the seabed and that makes them extremely steep as they rise from the seabed so that is a, a an amazing thing for animals in the sea to congregate around but partly because it's an it's a landmark in the middle of nowhere but also because the currents of the water push against the side of the volcanic island and come upwards putting fertilizer into the surface waters and making everything really fertile and it was extremely so you go into the water there and extremely full of fish and, and that particular year the, this little pink fish called creole fish were swarming everywhere and you could you had to sort of push them aside to see anything in places you know there's that many but um this dive i did was off darwin's arch which is arch of stone about a mile off the main island and marks another pinnacle that goes deep into the sea and we were dropped off there. I'm often a little bit slow with my kit. I like getting comfortable and making sure everything's right. And I had a secondary video camera with me. Uh, cameraman was Doug Allen, who was ahead of me. And they, they go, went into the water. I think they must have missed the fact that I wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> but so, so I hurried up and I could just see them all disappearing into the water down beneath me. And I went in. And uh, it was a good thing that I was a little late on that occasion because what they had missed was a whale shark which was going right behind them. And I went right underneath it. And it, and because I'd gone in late, I was right underneath it. And I saw this thing coming towards me. I mean, we were talking about a fish is what, 30 feet long. I don't know how many tons, but probably at least 10 tons coming straight towards me. And it, it's got a um, gray mottled uh, top and a white the belly. And um, it's just so amazing when it goes over the top of you it, it's like a blur of gray dots coming past you and i was i was literally maybe four feet underneath it as, as it went over the top of my head and i i was i was trying to film you know i was screaming but i was trying to film because i knew i should get this shot as it comes over very spectacular shot as it comes over the top of the camera and uh I, I made the mistake of following it, um, because I thought, Oh, well, I got that lovely shot as it came over my head. I did manage to get myself together and, and shoot it. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, I followed it. And, uh, that was a mistake because uh, it's very, very much faster than me. And, um, so. I'm losing a lot of air tr trying to keep up with it. Um, and I'm also now away from that pinnacle and in much deeper water and the current is very strong. And I'd probably broken every rule in the book about, you know, how you should stay with people. But, um, so, uh, I look round after a while. First of all, I noticed that I've, I've been in about six minutes. I've breathed about half my tank of, of air. Um, the then exertion. I look, yeah. And I look at Doug, um, and Doug's, uh, I can see him on the seabed, but he's about 50 meters in, ahead of me. And, um, so, uh, the current's very strong now. And I know the only thing to do 
is to go down because you get out of the current by going onto the seabed. So I did, I went down, but unfortunately now I was in deep water and the seabed was probably at about 35 meters, which is relatively deep. And then, um, I'm able to get along the seabed because there's, there's very little current next to the seabed. And I come up right behind Doug. But again, that's, that's taken an even more exertion. And I now know that I'm, um, going in danger of going into decompression time if I stay there and I don't have the air to do it. So those are sort of the, the, the calculations you make as a diver. And I wanted to tap Doug on the shoulder and say, look, I'm okay. I'm here right behind you. I think another scientist has seen leaving. Me, but I've got to go now. And I, and I remember letting go of the rock behind Doug and, um, I could see him filming some anemones or something down there. And, uh, some I, uh, sedit. <laughs> yes, yes. They'd, they'd all miss the whale shark. Um, and, and, uh, so I let, I let go of the rock and I literally flew backwards in the current. It was an amazing current because uh, in fact, the Galapagos is known for its currents. And then, um, uh, on, on the way, I saw in the distance a group of about 30 hammerhead sharks. Uh, which was shoaling around. <laughs> this They're is quite land. some dive. <laughs> oh my god! And then we're up to twelve minutes now, you know. So, um, <laughs> and uh, so I see this group of hammerhead sharks. I think, gosh, that's amazing. And, and then I go swept towards. I'm being swept, swept towards the arch now. Thank goodness, because it's shallower water. And uh, and um, and my dive times are all right, and I know I've got the air now. I'm okay. And um, and I go past this uh, this gully, and in the gully is an enormous green turtle. I mean, the size of a table. And I just go past it. It's like, hi, <laughs> so I'm being swept past. And then I come, you I come filming? up. Yeah, uh, sometimes, you, yeah. You were able to <laughs> so, film some of it. Yeah. And then I, then I, uh, um, came into the shallow water and there's these amazing silver jacks, really big and hundreds of them and all sorts of other fish, you know, but, uh, uh, and, and the light, I think it must have been, uh, towards the end of the afternoon and the light was getting a bit redder. And there's, I just remember seeing an, all the foam around, I was right at the base of, of a Darwin's arch and all the foam was, was going and the, the orange light coming through the water on these silver fish are absolutely beautiful. And I came out of the water, popped up and sure enough, there was one of the attentive, um, boat handlers, you know, we, we dive off ribs and, um, I was in the swell of the, of the, the stuff around the arch. So he asked me to get out of that because he couldn't get the boat in there. So I did manage to swim out of that. Climbed onto the boat. Exhausted. Exhausted. Looked at my dive computer. I'd been down for 18 minutes total, but that is probably the most spectacular dive of my life. Do you know, John, I don't mean to trivialize it in any way, but there's a fantastic sequence in the movie Finding Nemo, where Nemo gets lost and pulled away in a current behind uh, uh, some turtles, and it sounds like you had a similar kind of expedition. But wow, yes. what, what an amazing thing to see. Um, one of the biggest, I think it's probably the biggest fish in the ocean, isn't it? The, the whale shark. Yes. Yes, it is. It's the biggest, um, yes, it's the, it's the biggest cartilaginous fish. <laughs> well, it is a, the big, it is the biggest fish. The, the yeah, biggest, uh, bony fish is the, um, molar, the sun, sunfish. Um, yes. and I've met, I've met one of those off the Azores that was four and a half meters, um, which must have been the biggest bony fish in the world, probably. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, whale, the whale shark is a filter figure, but with a huge, Huge, wide mouth, and um, uh, I mean, what does it feel like when you just turn around and the largest fish in the world is swimming above you? I mean, I it's know you all, it's in awesome. professional swimming mode, but it's awesome. Um, it's just you—you you do feel a little chill on your spine as you realise that this thing could bump into you, um, but you're just so fascinated by 
being able to meet such a creature so close up and it's not it's not that bothered by you um i think it probably wouldn't want to bump into you either but um so uh for um blue planet 2 what we did we used some uh, remote cameras on them and uh the reason we were interested because this was many years later actually blue planet 2 was well, I think it was about 2015, 16, we were filming that. But, um, so nobody knows where whale sharks breed. We, we, in fact, very few people have ever seen a little baby whale shark. I think about 10 or 12 sightings ever of baby whale sharks. So where do they breed? There are some people that have been tagging them and they found that they do very long journeys off the coast of South America in that area. You find whale sharks all over the world, but in that area, they go all the way up to the Galapagos Islands where they believe they drop their young. They find very large females who are obviously pregnant. You can see, you can see, uh, their stomachs bulging with the fetuses and they stay on Darwin Island for about two days and then disappear and look a bit thinner when they've left. So, and what they think it ha- is happening is that they're dropping their young in the deeps off uh, Darwin Island, maybe even off that Darwin arch where I was. And what, uh, who I'd met was a female who was doing just that. And, um, nobody's actually seen this because they think it happens in deep water. They're trying to keep their young out of danger from some of the sharks. There's big tiger sharks and things there as well. So possibly what's happening is that they're dropping their young and their young, uh, live deep. Now the whale shark is a filter feeder. Um, obviously in the surface waters filter feeding, but the young might well be bottom dwelling fish. They have some. Uh, similarities to, I think it's the Wobegong, uh, shark in, in Australia, which are bottom dwellers. So they're, they're starting to decode how, how these fish breed. I think they have, they have sharks, which are, uh, is it white tipped or yellow tipped reef sharks? Um, because I, 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 you've just prompted a memory with me. Uh, one of the visits, the first time I was there, we, we took a boat to one of the smaller islands of Santa Fe. And um, it's not inhabited, and and myself and the producer Miles Barton were were left on Santa Fe for a few hours while the fishermen went off and fished and came back, and we went and recorded primarily through the nests of blue-footed boobies, which are the most amazing birds. And and the males uh, they they have these they're they're very aptly named big blue paddle feet, powder blue feet, absolutely gorgeous um, uh, animals, and they stride around. And lift their feet. I'm actually doing it for you now with my hands. They lift their foot and put one down, and then lift another foot and put another down, and they display their feet. So they're they're beautifully named. But I remember when we were climbing back off that island again, the little boat that we were was bobbing around a lot. So it wasn't a jetty. So we were having to come from a rock onto the boat. Um, and I remember a mile saying to me, "Don't worry about the sharks in the water there." And I looked down momentarily. He was joking, of course, as I as I was jumping, but. Um, the boat moved slightly, and uh, in those days, we didn't have sophisticated recording equipment. I actually had a, a, a small, because it was sophisticated for its time, a small, do you remember the small cassette recorders that we used, John? Um, yes. When you were on the Naturalist program, and of course... Right, they're, was, they're hardly more than a sophisticated Sonny Walkman uh, yes, thing. Exactly, that's exactly the sort of thing it was, and um, as I jumped over onto the boat, I dropped the cassette recorder into the water on into the Pacific and of course it contained the last um, 45 minutes of recording on the island. Uh, you can imagine the, the looks that I got uh, Miles, <laughs> Miles very quickly put his arm in the water and grabbed the recorder and pulled it back out and pulled the cassette out and uh, thankfully um, when we go back to the 
the, the center that dried out and we were able to retrieve the recording. But could you imagine what that would have been like, John, if I, if I had, you know. Yes. Well, things like that happen. Uh, I always say it's what you end up getting rather than what you've lost, you know. Speaking but, of which, when Doug came back up from the seabed after filming those very sedate anemones, uh, were you full of boasts about what he had missed or what <laughs> you got? Well, I don't like to boast with Doug because you can't boast with a man who's who's uh, been to both poles about umpteen times um, and seen hundreds of polar bears. Well, um, he must have admired the, the shot that you got of the of the of the great white. Yeah, no, yeah, that was, that was, that was fun to say. It's like he was filming anemones and I was filming a whale shark. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, it's, um, it's partly a luck of, of where you are at the time, at the moment. And if I hadn't been a bit late getting into the water, I wouldn't have seen that, uh, or at least not been so close. Um, we should say that the, uh, the Galapagos are right on the equator. Um, and they have penguins on the island as well. Yes. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, the, they're the northernmost, uh, penguin. Uh, it's, um, type of, uh, banded penguin, like the chin straps in, um, uh, I think you, you get them in, in South Georgia and also you get a similar species in South Africa. But these are even further north. And the reason they can be so far north, because penguins like cold water, is because there's this cold Humboldt current coming up from the Antarctic. And that cools it down more than it, you'd expect. You know, there's a whole range of different currents there. Actually, it was one of the reasons the Galapagos is so fertile in the sea world is because of all these currents meeting, even deep ones coming up. There's like something called the Cromwell current, which um, it, it puts nutrient into the surface waters. And as soon as that happens, that fertilizer makes the sea come alive. That herpetology conference that I was attending um, back in the early 80s, uh, a lot of the papers were about the problems that the Galapagos have and the um, and the problems that the wildlife has on the Galapagos. And, and a lot of the problems, because um, uh, quite a few of the species are ground-dwelling birds, uh, ground-nesting birds, um, the fact that there are no natural pre- predators on the island. And when um, man started to populate the island and he visit the island, he brought rats and uh, dogs and cats um, and of course, these are animals which have, in many instances, devastated some of the uh, the natural ecosystems in the island. One of the islands, I think, was Pinta. In the seventies, have uh, fishermen put a couple of goats on, and it's quite a famous example now used in textbooks. Where, after just a short number of years, there were so many goats on the island that the island was completely denuded of vegetation, including all the cactus and inedible stuff. But the uh, the giant tortoise that was uh, able to exist there practically didn't exist any longer. I know it's generally the case that animals that have evolved on in large land masses on the continents are stronger because they've had probably more competitors over the years, and they've had to be you know um, able to cope with them. Whereas animals that have evolved on islands have been separated from everything else until we came along, and they've gone their own way, and it's all been hunky dory until. They meet some of these tougher creatures from the from the mainland, which humans have brought. Same thing happened to the dodo in Mauritius. Um, so, yes, it's uh, it's important to try and keep these areas clear of of animals like that. And of course, the the main animal to uh, that wants to visit the island now it's it's us, it's humans. And um, the second time that I was there, I was a guest lecturer on a on a boat, uh, Columbus Caravel for BBC Wildlife magazine in the late 80s. 
um, because I had been before, I was able to go back and I, we had to, to sail quite a distance to get there, obviously, come from the South American coast. But What I are your sea legs like, by the way? Uh, my sea legs are quite good, actually. So I do, you know, been brought up by the sea and I've been out in front of uh, this. I'm just looking out the window now at the RAC and my brother still owns a boat. But uh, 20, 30 years ago, he threw lobster pots and I would row him around fairly rough seas. So my, my sea legs are quite good. But this was a you know, this is a very luxurious ship. I described it as a five star luxury floating hotel, and the the lecture theatre was state of the art. It was a pleasure to be able to tell people over the three or four days cruise of the 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 voyages of the Beagles, and I prepared good lectures. And because we both worked in the Natural History, and at that time, John, you know, there were lots of wonderful slides of people who'd been able to visit the island, making wildlife programs. So it was, it was a, there were really good illustrated talks you, you better explain what a slide is yes I know. Well, uh, yes everybody my children i say to me things like that what's a slide or why did you not ring somebody you know 20 years ago of course before mobile phones and they don't get it but of course the slides are the, the photographic slides with little cardboard mounts that you would put into a projector and project and be very well organized but uh, the thing that that struck me then and i'm sure happens now is uh, people who are simply tourists and who are, simply want to go and visit the Galapagos Islands. Um, and I was there with um, a group of about, I think, 20 uh, uh, British and I, maybe 60 or 70 Germans. And the Germans also had their own le- lecture on board. And it was, a, it was a very successful trip. But the, the awe which people have um, when you bring them onto one of the shore excursions and they see the sea lions or they see the boobies or in fact we also I remember spent a day uh, looking at three or four different islands and and we had an ornithologist on board who was able to point out Darwin's finches so they have very uh, adaptive beaks some are for are, are for probing and some are for cracking nuts and some are for whatever else um, and and you you leave those islands with a real sense of achievement because you know that you have created another 80 ambassadors for a wonderful natural place in the world. Yeah. And we, you know, they're very strict to um, keep the parks, um, which is, it's a national park, of course. Um, and uh, you have to have a, a guide with you as a filming crew, um, you know, who, who obviously um, monitors that you don't harass wildlife and so on. Indeed. I mean, wildlife filmmakers do never intend to harass wildlife, but of course, you, you there are just physical things like you'd want to get as close as you can, and yeah. so that's always a compromise. Um, but um, you know, I I just uh, I, I I was amazed also at how tame a lot of the wildlife was. I think and something else people remark on. We had we had a little fur seal pup climb. Uh, it was on my camera case, well, a little sort of suitcase, and uh, I put the suitcase on the beach and right next to me this seal just jumps up onto the case and has a look at me and <laughs> i was thinking excuse me i just need to get a lens mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, here we are sitting chatting about the uh you know as if it was like a trip down to the local shop i I'm, i neither of us take it for granted but you know with that early part of my career john and we were talking about 30 30 something years ago um there i was not not only going once to the galapagos professionally but twice and then I remember coming back and I was sitting um, in my office one day and I got a phone call from somebody at the Royal Geographical Society 
who said, believe you've been to the Galapagos recently, heard your piece on the radio, we're putting together a, a conference on ecotourism, would you do a paper for us and come and, and, come and give us a, a, a talk? Um, and I, it was just one of those moments where you think, somebody from the Royal Geographical Society has invited me to go along and give a talk about my trip to the Galapagos Islands, and that's probably something that Darwin did all those hundreds, hundreds of years ago, or you know, a couple of hundred years ago, when he when he visited the islands, and you just think this is such a privilege. The the occupation that that you and I have both have it, it really is. We've had some yes, times. I, I, I you know I've stopped um, arguing with people who think that I'm on permanent holiday um, because I realise they don't really want to know um, that I'm working and. Um, they want to believe that there is this sort of wonderful job. And it is an amazing thing making wildlife films. But of course, like anything, it has its stresses and, and, and it's hard work. And, um, so, and also you have a duty to, you, you know, you're spending other people's money to bring back something good that's entertaining and that people would want to listen to. Like us. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Hey, let's just talk a bit about Charles Darwin because you, you're absolutely right there. Uh, he he was there with his captain Fitzroy on the Beagle, and I believe it's the fifteenth of September, eighteen thirty-five, that he landed on the Galapagos. Yes. And talk about inaccessible. Then it would have been even, you know, it would have been part of the dark part of the. Well, I mean, the dark part of the world. It would have. I people that I talk to. You know, and myself included, you know, wouldn't have been able to put a, the Galapagos on the map um, exactly. And uh, imagine what it was like in 1835. So they come to this strange lost world, you know. And I suspect um, that a lot of his, well, I know because I've read about it, a lot of, lot of his theories and thinking happened back at home. But, but it was because he was such a prolific collector, as a lot of the Victorians were, of course. Um, and then he collected specimens of everything, types of animals and plants, and brought them back. And of course, those collections are still probably in the Naturalist Museum in London. John, are they? Yeah, they're, they're actually his finches. Some of his finches are in Tring, which is a secondary museum yes, yes, outside yes. London. But um, I've seen them actually. But but the thing is that uh, he's a very erudite man. In those days, you perhaps didn't specialize as much. So he was interested. He was a geologist. He, he called the Galapagos the land of the volcanoes because there were so many craters and he understood the, the, uh, nature of them. In fact, he even, there's something called Tufa, uh, volcanic rock, which is he was the first person to correctly identify how it was formed through the ashes being compressed. And, uh, so he knew about that. He also wrote his, one of his first books was on corals, which he also looked at, presumably through a bucket, open-ended bucket or something. Um, and he, he understood that they were made from little, um, organisms and that the little organisms grew together to make these, um, reefs. Although actually in the Galapagos, they're more like little colonies. And, um, so he understood how corals were made. He understood how the volcanic islands were formed. And he collected, as you say, the finches and he talked to some of the locals about the tortoises being different on each of the islands. And that kind of started him thinking. You can see his thought processes. And then when he got back, he thought those, um, finches or mocking, I think, did they call them mockingbirds? Mm. They, 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 um, he thought they were different species. And it wasn't until he got back. I think he only visited four islands in five weeks and he took some species from each. When he got back, he realized that they weren't different species. He realized that they were the same basic finch, 
and that they'd all got slight variations. And that, of course, got him thinking about isolation changing the form of animals and, and how evolution might be working on them. The other wonderful thing, of course, was he had a very understanding wife who allowed him to go off for six months or wherever around the sea and uh, the ocean and collect. I'm just yes. thinking about what my wife would say if I announced I'm yes. my darling. Well, that's right, but it would have been more than six months, wouldn't it? I mean, it would have been, I can't remember what the first voyage of the Beagle would have been yes. about a couple of years, wouldn't it? But could you imagine you and I announcing, you know, shortly that we're going off to record some podcasts yes. and do some collecting for I know. a year they, or so? It's amazing, really. Well, they juggled, they juggled, the way they juggled things, you know, and, and they got around a bit, those people. And you kind of think of, we're in this fabulous privileged age of of relatively cheap international flight if you happen to be you know able to afford that um and she said the world is your oyster quite literally but it, it, some of the people living in the victorian times were able to travel quite a long way um i guess the british and the american uh trading fleets would have been all over the world so maybe that's how they did it i know people like mark twain was went all over the world from new zealand to um hawaii and you just don't give them credit for being international. You couldn't call them jet setters, but they were ship setters all around the world. And, and Darwin used it to his advantage to compare and contrast so many different places all around the world. He was in South America. I think, um, you know, he found things like giant ground sloth, um, uh, you know, those 30 foot sloths. He found the skins of them in caves in South America. And, um, you know, he's all over the place, really. And I think that's probably not a bad note on which we might end the thought that when we run out of reminiscences, John, who knows when that will be, that you and I go back on the road and uh, create some more of our adventures for ourselves and for our podcast listeners. I think we should. <laughs>